The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a songer and a singer, and sure, let's call me an artist from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm joined in the studio today by the deducer, the sonic sprucer, the producer, Gil. Y'all come for the Gil, you stay for my dumbass. And I can't thank you enough for doing both. You're listening to The Mix. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? My guest today is producer Matt Ross Spang, and we'll get there in the bat of an eyelash. The eyelash of a bat. Moving on, we have to look at the merch table. We absolutely have to do it. If you like this show, please subscribe, rate, review. I've been bowled over by the response to season one so far, and rating and reviewing helps new folks continue to find the show. So please keep spreading the word, y'all. I really appreciate it. What do I see on the merch table betwixt the dog collars and pint glasses? Big news. Big news, y'all. Save the date, October 20th. I'm going to do something special uh, to close out the season. The guest for episode 11 is you. Here's the deal. We are taping a live episode of The Mix on October 20th, 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. Here's how you can get involved. Me and a co-host will talk about the songs that mean the most to you. So the first thing that you can do is go ahead and drop me a line at chris at chrismilam.com or find me on social media. I'm easy to find. Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Chris Milam. And uh, tell me what song means the most to you. There are no wrong answers. We're just going to get all of your feedback, compile all the responses, and then build an episode around you and the songs that matter to you the most. Over the course of an hour, my co-host and I will talk about you and your songs But you can also tune in live for the taping. Uh, If you live in Memphis and you want to be in the studio live with us, we'll also bring you into the conversation. Um, That's totally free. Just stay tuned for uh, details on how to join us. But everybody else listening out there in the wide world can stream it live. uh, Concertwindow.com slash Chris Milam. Concertwindow.com slash Chris Milam. Go ahead and bookmark it. We'll see you on October 20th. Last thing on the merch table is a piping hot ad read. Everyone knows that reading is great, except for the reading part. And that's why this mix is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audioaudibletrial.com slash OAM. Over 180,000 titles. How many 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player? Okay, let's talk about Matt Ross Spang. Matt Ross Spang is a rising star. Born and raised in Memphis, Matt felt a deep connection to its musical heritage early. He began as an intern at Legendary Sun Studio at age 16 and worked his way up to chief engineer in short order. When Nashville producer Dave Cobb needed a right hand for Jason Isbell's Something More Than Free, Matt Ross Spang got the call. Just four years and two Grammys later, Matt's credits include Isbell, John Prine, Margot Price, Al Green, and bringing it all back home to Sun, Elvis Presley. Matt's talent and work ethic have made him a go-to producer for emerging artists and established legends alike, but as you'll hear, his attitude sets him apart. Easygoing and hospitable, 
consider it strikingly modest. He's successful enough to call heroes colleagues, but human enough to never take that for granted. In an industry filled with grifters, divas, and ne'er-do-wells, Matt Ross Spang is proof that good things happen to good people. One final note for his mix, Matt sent me 11 songs. I also close every mix by asking the guest about a song of theirs I love, so 12 total. You can listen to his full mix on Spotify. That link and the full track list are also in this episode's liner notes. Here now, the mix, Matt Ross Spang. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to be joined today by Mr. Matt Ross Spang. How you doing? I'm good, Bubba. How are you? <laughs> doing fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. I know that you're yeah. a busy man. Well, you're a patient man, so that works. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally never been accused of that in my entire well, life. You were. I canceled on you three times within less than 24 hours, right? Uh, might have been. I wasn't keeping track, but not, these are the, not these, the actual day, but this, the the deadline to turn in the list. That's true. Although, I mean, you had the same reaction to it that everyone's had, and I would also have, which is it's it's impossible to do. No yeah. one can whittle these songs down to like you know a no. handful. No, it's an impossible task, and yet we're gonna try. Um, a bit of table setting before we dive into your mix, which is wonderful and very exciting. I'm I'm eager to talk about it. Um, first things first, where are you from? Born and raised in Memphis. Born and raised in Memphis. And you, your origin story kind of comes out of Sun Studio. Yeah, I first recorded there when I was 14. It was awful. Uh, me and a guy went there and did, I put acoustic, he played Jimby drum. That's how bad it was. Oh, wow. Uh, but uh, my parents bought us two hours of studio time. I think it was for like my birthday. But, um, you know, we were terrible. We knew we'd never play live. So our goal, I think we deep down, we knew that that was never a, even an option. No one would let us. So we were like, we'll skip that step and go right to the studio. And we just wanted to record. And um, the engineer there was James Lott, this amazing guy who treated us like we need to be there. And when I saw him working the board, that's when I kind of figured out that's what I really want to be doing. And so when I turned 16, he let me come back and intern. So I get out of high school, I go back to Sun, I give tours during the day because they, they were a tourist place first. And then at six o'clock at night, we start recording. Oh, wow. And I became the intern and I worked, I ended up staying at Sun for about 11 years and worked all the way up to, I was the main engineer and also was the operations manager on the side. And that's how I met you. Uh, you yeah. were working at Sun when I taped an episode of PBS Sun Session, I want to say 2013, yeah. but I might yeah. have that wrong. Um, and I can go ahead and speak to my experience. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there not, that night, but you definitely made me feel warm and welcome. And oh, I thought you were going to say, as I, such. I made you not feel like you <laughs> No, no, not at all. You, you definitely paid that forward. Um, well, I want to go ahead and uh, dive into your mix here. Let's talk about R.E.M.'s Man on the Moon. Now, this came out in 1992 off Automatic for the People. This is one of my favorite albums of all yeah. time. I was I yeah. love that this was the first track he sent me. Uh, what was your introduction to this song? Well, I wanted to give you one, a big one from my childhood, and that's a, probably a weird one to say it's from my childhood, but my, my dad and mom always had a great taste in music. So growing up, I'd always hear a lot of R.E.M. and, um, you know, Sunvolt, Wilco, Uncle right. Tupelo, and... Um, the Automatic for the People record, they would play quite a bit because I remember when it came out and they, he, my dad played that one a lot. He was a big, big R.E.M. fan. 
And I remember that song, Man on the Moon, and asking about Andy Kaufman. And then around that time, a cousin of mine came in town and had a a book, a biography on Andy, where it's him in a straitjacket. Like there was a picture of him in a straitjacket looking at the book. And I became like kind of obsessed with this Mm. um, book. And then the movie came out with Jim Carrey. And when you're a kid, Jim Carrey's like, Jesus, you know? oh yeah, no, he's <laughs> at least massive. for our, our age, right? And uh, I saw Man on the Moon, and I just became obsessed with this guy Andy Kaufman. I just thought he was hilarious. He was way different than any other thing. And um, in that song, like they wrote this beautiful, sad song about this guy. Who is this guy? And so I actually even went. I forget what grade in middle school we had to do a. They call them paper bag book reports, but you had to dresses the guy a person you wanted to be your book was on right i went as andy kaufman and i did the uh <laughs> man the mighty mouse thing oh wow. and none of the kids got it at all mm-hmm. and the teacher was like how does this you know how old i was kid know andy Kaufman? why what and uh, anyways uh so that song's always kind of been so and i still it's such a, a sad you know his story's beautiful and sad and, mm-hmm. and that song really evokes that like i can't listen to that song without you know, without feeling all those things. Right. Uh, and the movie's great too. If they, if you, people haven't seen Man on the Moon, it's great. I'll admit to, I've, I've never seen you it. You really should see it. It's, it's phenomenal. It's Jim, it's Jim Carrey's best acting. It's, it, Courtney loves ba- best acting. Oh, and wow. DeVito's best acting. It's just, uh, incredible. That was, uh, I had a similar introduction to this song slash album although i have an older brother who turned me on to all the cool stuff as it Mm -hmm. was coming out and uh i mean i was very young when in 1992 um but it was kind of the first thing that justin and i wanted to listen to their parents weren't playing for us yeah it was just kind of it felt like ours in a way yeah or really his and i was glomming on to it but uh I, i can't hear it's weird because this whole album really has death as a running theme throughout it yeah um, and a great deal of sadness, but I can't hear songs like Man in the Moon without having like really happy childhood memories yeah, associated yeah. to it. Yeah. I don't know uh, what that says about me. It's interesting too that you were such a super fan of Andy Kaufman in Memphis because uh, a lot of Memphians oh, yeah. Like, wrestling, yeah. <laughs> have that weird uh, Jerry Lawler rivalry. Jerry King with him and, but they were in cahoots together. That right. was all planned. And yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. He did it all. He was loved as you know and also when you're a kid you watched taxi all the time i mean it was on mm. nick at night it was on all those things but yeah you know he was a comedian he was a musician he he wanted to be the bad guy he just must want to be the good guy it's just amazing right so. is this the rem album that you revisit the most um you know i actually put this record away i think because i heard it so much as a kid i put it mm. away for a while but recently they put out like the 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary of it and that beautiful box set with all these alternate takes and i started really listening to it again mm. but um no i've i there's a couple of rem records that that get played quite a bit yeah let's move on to john prine's how lucky this is off pink cadillac came out in 1979 a bride's my shoes and i from a review mirror Rob's admiration in a blast part of the grid. Well, there was all these things that I don't think I remember. Now, I read that you have a special attachment to uh, this song title. Um, did you ever get How Lucky on your on your uh, 
license uh, yes, plate? Yes, it's in, it's in the works right now. The Tennessee government works a little bit slower. Than that, <laughs> like. But, um, yeah, I uh, my again, my dad got me big into John Prime was like when I was a kid, and I remember when Borders. Um, this is back when we bought music in stores, kids. But there was uh, Borders <laughs> in town, and there was a huge John Prine anthology, and he looked so cool sitting on the front. And I saved up some money from my first job and bought this. I think I wanted to like his way of getting closer to my dad too, or, or impress him or something. But mm. I bought this John Prine anthology, and. Um, There was a time where, um, I forget where we saw him, but there was some footage, and he did How Lucky, and I saw it, and just that song blew my mind. I can't remember now or the first time I heard that song. Um, it's bugging me now. But anyways, I saw it, and it, this one song just kind of consumed me. And then later I find out it was cut in Memphis at St. Phil's Recording Service, which is where I work currently out of now. And it was done by Jerry and Knox, and but... That Jerry and Knox, which are Sam Phillips' sons, they produced that whole album except for two songs, How Lucky and Saigon. Sam Phillips came back in and did them. Oh, and wow. he'd been retired for years. He just was driving by and saw the lights were on. He thought someone had, it was early in the morning and thought someone had forgot to turn the power off. But really, they were doing drugs all night and <laughs> they didn't start till nine o'clock at night and they were working through the morning. Right. And Sam ended up producing this song. And um, it's just a phenomenal John Prine song, you know? Mm. And, and I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I, I, you know, life has always been, there's ups and downs, but everything has just been so great for me and I can't complain at all. And that song really strikes a chord. And to fast forward, what you're, what you're referring to, I, um, last year produced four or five songs for Amazon music. And one of them, I asked John Prine to recut that song because he did that song when he was 32 mm. and I've heard him when I got to, um, I'm jumping over the place, but I, I worked on the, the latest John Prine record, the tree of forgiveness. Mm. I was the engineer on it and I was nervous as heck getting to work on it. And I went out there to go put the mics on them. And as an engineer on the first day, you know, everyone's kind of nervous to meet each other. And it's very personal to come up and put mics on someone and it's just kind of you and him. And so you have, you know, you got to, do you say something, you not say something, blah, blah. And he was like, do you mind if I put this up and do you mind sound checking with something? And he started playing How Lucky. Oh. And I literally got teary eyed mm. behind the board before even we started. Uh, and it was, it was the most magical time making a record with him. So a couple months later, Amazon asked me to produce a track on John. I asked him to recut that song because now, and he too, he's like the, he would say the same thing. He's like a little kid, so lucky. And to hear him cut that song now, years, years later, it has a more bittersweetness to it. Mm. And uh, right before we cut it, he uh, uh, gave me his uh, one of his Cadillacs out of his garage. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him I get how lucky is the license plate. But he gave me a 93 Eldorado coupe. He said it looked like me. Oh, my God. <laughs> With a rag top. So <laughs> I love it. It's, uh, I drive it all the time. It's just amazing. Did you drive it here today? I didn't drive it here today because I got some equipment oh, okay. in my car. I can say that because no one can, can break into my car after <laughs> I say this, but I have equipment in the car. I don't want to, his leather seats, you don't want to, no. you don't want to scratch John Prine's leather seats. Absolutely not. Um, it's interesting that you said that, you know, it's, you always heard it as it resonates with you because you also feel very lucky. And yeah. Mr. Prine would say the same thing about himself yeah. and his life. But over the years, it's taken on a little bit more of a bittersweet feel. Um, is that something that he talked about with you in conversation? Has the song changed meaning for him? We didn't years? talk too much about, but just the way he plays it now, mm. it's just different. And, you know, with he had, you know, he's had so many surgeries with cancer, and his voice has changed a lot over the years, and and just um, 
just the way he plays, you know, Sam had one, Sam told him, I didn't find this out until I talked to John later, but Sam's production note for John was like, I want you to record it like you're walking down the street waving at everybody. That's right. why it's a little bit more up-tempo, you know, right. with the with the foot stomping and, and uh, you know, John just playing by himself, it's a whole other thing, so. Right. I, um, already we're two songs in and you've mentioned that your folks turned you on to both these artists. Mm-hmm. Uh you said that you grew up in a very uh, music-rich household. Were your folks musicians? No. Okay. I have, my mom would sing, but you wouldn't want to hear it. It goes <laughs> without everyone, including me and the family. Um, yeah, no one in my family is really musically talented or super um, uh, music fans, except my dad and my, my mom, more so my dad. My dad really has like stacks of CDs and vinyl mm. and, and uh, would love to go see live music and stuff like that. And she does too, but my dad really... Would I'd say it would be buying more of the music and stuff, right? Um, so yeah, that, in that sense, I was filled with it, but not no instruments or anything around. Are they still with us? Yeah. Okay, so your dad's been able to see you working with some of these yeah, folks. Yeah, I, I I joke. They've always been proud of me, but I joke that when I worked with Paul Thorne, who my dad's a big Paul Thorne fan, John Prime I was like, oh, finally now you appreciate, you know, now I finally made it or something. <laughs> they they've always felt that way. But that's great. Yeah, they they loves and Jason, they're big Jason Isbell fans, right. so. Yeah, they've been tickled to death by all this. Right. I want to ask you about uh, the next song in your mix. This is Dan Penn's Nobody's Fool off of Nobody's Fool. came out in 1973. Dan Penn is... A legendary uh, songwriter, hit yeah. songwriter, but also producer. And here we have artists in his own right. Um, has connections to Muscle Shoals, but also, of course, Memphis. Yeah. Um, do you see him as kind of an exemplar for your own career in a way? Dan is probably my biggest hero. And honestly, mm. I think I picked that song because the album's called Nobody's Fool and you should hear the whole album because mm. every song on that album's incredible. Dan, uh, you know... Uh, and that, it's hard not to put Dark into the Street on there because sure. Dan's, that was probably Dan and Chip's moment to co-wrote that one. And they co-wrote Do Right Woman. Um, but uh, Dan was a 17-year-old kid out in Alabama. He had a band called the Paul Bears. He rode around in a hearse and <laughs> um, wrote these amazing songs. His first hit record when he was 16 is is a Bluebird Blue. And Conway Twitty had a hit with, with it. And Dan became a big writer, but he's actually one of the world's greatest soul singers uh jerry wexler said he's the greatest white soul singer of all time oh. and you probably won't hear that on nobody's fool his voice is a little ragged on that one um <laughs> in a great way but if you listen to any of him sing any of his other songs and his i saw him two weeks ago playing at the city winery and his voice has only gotten better and better it's uh-huh. just incredible but yeah he famously produced the letter he wrote cry like a baby i'm your puppet do right woman mm. a dark end of the street just a phenomenal writer and simple, simple songs, right. but really meaningful. Uh, I listened to a, a cool story by him, and he said when he was about 17 or 18, he went to Nashville with, uh, I think it was David Briggs or Rick Hall, and they had a demo reel of their tapes to go to play for Chip's Moment, these okay. other guys, these producers. And they put the reel on, and they listen to about 10 seconds, and they'd fast forward and go to the next song. And Dan's like, man, they're not even waiting for the chorus. You know, that's the payoff, and... <laughs> He said, I, I, he was like, back then I wrote real cinematic, you know, like you, it was a journey to get to that chorus. Right. And he's like, it pissed me off. They wouldn't even get there. <laughs> and then he real, and, 
and he asked him about it, and they said, well, if it doesn't grab my attention by now, it won't. You know, the listener will change the radio dial. Right. right. And that kind of blew his mind. So he said he went home, and from then on, the title of his song was always the first line of his song. So mm-hmm. when you listen to his songs after like 1960-something, Dark in the Street starts with At the Dark. Right. And, you know, they all had the title, you know, right, right. I'm your puppet. Right. Know? Uh, I'm at her in church. So anyways. Well, that's I, still pretty cinematic thought, though. Yeah. Like you see the title screen at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, you left the water running. I mean, it's just like all those. So anyways, uh, he just is um, uh, one of the most incredible, humble uh, men. And I've got, luckily got to meet him and just, it, it, for me, I I've, I can talk to pretty much anybody, but Dan, I start to get like mumble mouth and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, when you when you listen to these types of songs, are you listening now primarily as a producer first, as a musician first, as a fan first? Uh, all, uh, it depends, you know, like, um, like Dan, I can only listen to Dan stuff and just in awe. Mm. Um, newer music, um, I try to, usually that brain, time my brain's turned off, it kind of depends on the setting, mm. you know, like, um, or what the context is. Like, am I just, did I just buy this record and I can't wait to hear it? Or is someone playing me a demo? Right. Or like, this is a reference track or something. But um, <clears throat> no, I always try and just listen to it as a listener first. And then in um, listening it with production ears and stuff, very rarely ruins it for me uh, because, you know, you never know where that song or music started. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times have you been in the studio and you got somewhere because of a limitation? Like, oh, well, there's too much drum bleed. So what we did was this. And so I can't listen and go like, oh, his drums are... Right. Blah, blah. Because I don't, you know, we don't know what went on before that. So right. I try not to even think about that because I've been in those situations where, you know, that's what's partly what's cool is you get these different sounds. Right. So I, I, I don't, there, there are times where you listen to someone and go, man, that's a great song, but someone else needs to do it because they didn't do it the right way. Right. There's actually one on the bonus tracks that is one of my favorite. It's make me cry every time, but the production on it, I think, is atrocious. But it still doesn't ruin the song for me. Well, Let's talk about it. It's um, Warren Zevon, um, Keep Me in Your Heart for a While. Okay. I think I sent it to you. Uh, and really, it does. I, I'm not even a Matt. I mean, I love Warren Zevon, but I'm not like a diehard Warren Zevon fan. But he died when I was, you know, starting to make records. And he put out that last record. And if anyone's going to go out, they should go out the way Warren Zevon did. He put out this beautiful record. Uh, and that song, you keep, me, keep Me in Your Heart for a While. And the first line is, I think he had lung cancer. I can't remember, but the first line is, "Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath." Mm. Keep me out. And every time he's my neck hair is standing up now, just thinking about it. Right. And the song is beautiful and just like I can't imagine what, how much his family and his friends that song did for them, mm. you know, and did for Warren. But there's this awful like. <laughs> like drum groove loop in the background, like toms. And it's okay. just like, it should just be him finger picking the thing. Right. But there's all this like, like Phil Collins is in the background. Uh, and stuff. <laughs> I got you. And it's atrocious production, but the song is so great. Right. And that's what you tell people a lot of times in the studio, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter how the drums sound. It, it's a song. It's a song. Great. You know? Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't think to me, it doesn't totally matter listening with producer. It rarely has a record been ruined because of producers. It's mostly, Headspace, you know, there's times where I listen to a record and I don't get it. Right. And then six months later, something, someone died or I, you know, I'm, 
you know, single again or right. whatever the or whatever the heck happens, and then you listen to that record, and all of a sudden that record is like one hundred percent incredible. Yeah, I, that's why Automatic for the People, for example, has always been one of my favorite albums. I feel like it's grown up with me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's followed me through every stage of life yeah. somehow. Um, so. I actually just wanted to ask you a very broad question. We've had Jeff Powell on the season so far. We've had, (laughs) yeah, long time arch nemesis of yours, right? Uh, We've had Jeff Powell. We've had I Make Mad Beats. So we've had some other uh, notable producers on so far. And I just ask everybody this question because I'm always getting a different answer. How do you define the role of producer? Um, I think it, it's really, um, It's really everything. It, it can be anything and everything. It really depends on the artist and the situation. You know, some artists um, don't really need a producer, but they hire one because um, it takes some little bit of stress off them. And they just need, really need like a little guy on their shoulder going, you're doing great. That was, that. Mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. That was it. Or, you know, that was, this is that. But a producer can be anything from that to, you know, you have a Phil Spector or you have um George R. R. Martin, you know, where Phil Spector really changed the way records sounded and changed the way people, the artists was appeared and seemed. Uh, Barry, you know, at Motown, they would, um, with Barry Gordy and the staff producers, they taught the people how to dress, dance. Mm. They picked out what clothes they were. They changed their names. Right. They picked the songs for them, you know. So that's pretty heavy-handed production right. in all f- forms. And then there's... You know, Bob Johnson with Bob Dylan, who just kind of like, we're rolling, Bob. Right. You know, like, it was like, yeah, you're right. That's the one kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, not to discredit Bob Johnson, because that's what Bob Dylan needs. Right. If you go in there and try and tell Bob, like, no, we're going to go to a click track. Right. And we're going to auto-tune your vocal, and right. you need to cut five of those 12 verses. They wouldn't be a good Bob Dylan record, and Bob right. wouldn't work with him. Or probably the record would never come out. Right. So it really depends on um, multiple things. But I think, really, you just are basically the boils down to being the, the artist and the song's BFF <laughs> and just whatever that entails. I try to, I think egos can really ruin records and situations. So I try to leave mine at the door and I just try to listen. The main thing is just being a listener because mm-hmm. um, not just to what the song needs, but also you have to listen to each artist uh, and player and see what kind of mood they're in? Is this the right song choice for him? Is he hungry? Do we need to take a break because right. he sounds cranky and we should take a break and then go back and try the song? It's, it boils down to the littlest things. Right. But at the end of the day, it's just being a listener, I think. Mm. it's When you really listen, you can tell. You don't have to know. I don't know music theory. I can't tell you, you know, scales or anything like that. But you can hear when a part is not working or when it is working or when a, you know, uh when the vocal needs to be, I just feel like it's, it's when you just really close your eyes and listen, it, it reveals itself. Right. So it's, it's, it's babysitter, psychologist, friend, jerk. Sometimes, sometimes you got to be mean. Sometimes you got to, um, not, not really mean, but sometimes you have to be stubborn and put your foot down. Right. Stuff like that. So just in terms of, uh, seeing firsthand, um, local producer in Memphis, Toby Best produced my last album kids these days at high low recording. And, it's fascinating because, you know, Toby was one of the first folks I've ever worked with in music that I felt like I spoke the same language as me uh-huh. yeah, and kind of shared my vision for the project. Um, but Toby doesn't necessarily handle me as an artist the same way he handles someone else yeah, as an artist. And I've seen him kind of 
work through that psychology <laughs> depending on the Which person. Which means Toby's really great at what he does because a lot of people, and I knew that because I know Toby, he's badass. Right. Um, um, but yeah, it's in, you know, like I was joking about Jeff, but Jeff's phenomenal too. You know, you just, um, some, I feel like some producers, there's some great producers who do it. Willie Mitchell, you mm. can, you know, a Willie Mitchell record, whether it's Ann Peebles or Al Green, you know who it is right. before you know the singer, right? You, you hear that snare drum, you know, or horns, you know, it's Willie Mitchell. In no way does that take away from those artists' songs. Right. But I've always kind of been on the other end of like, I don't think I'm that good. I don't think I'm as good as Willie where I can have a sonic identity mm. that doesn't impart too much on the singer. So I like it where you you don't know who produced that record. Like, you know, it's a surprise. Right. And it's not like, oh, that's obviously a Matt Rossbang record because he's doing that trick again or something. Right. Like, that's what I don't want. <laughs> or the Spectre even Wallace though, album. Yeah, even though Phil Spectre, Willie Mitchell, Sam Phil, all those guys who have that sound, I'm huge fans of, right. you know. But I just don't think I'm as good as those guys to <laughs> get away with that. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Ann Peebles. Um, you have on your mix, Ann Peebles, You Keep Me Hanging On. This came out on I Can't Stand the Rain, 1974. This is a less famous song off of a super famous album. What is yeah. it about this one that resonates so much? Um, you know what's weird is I was worried I was going to give you all depressing sad songs because <laughs> that's where I tend to love. And I've like now I've sent you all these like romantic songs. I don't know why. Um, it's telling me something. Your mix is telling me a lot about myself that I didn't <laughs> know. Um, I just love that song. Ann Peebles is like my queen. I just think Ann Peebles is incredible. Um, um, her and Don Bryant, her her husband, longtime husband, who was also a co-writer and another star at High. They just put out these amazing records with Willie Mitchell, and I'm a huge Willie Mitchell fan. And Ann, you know, while other people were singing, in that time, you know, when you look at the music out, soul music out there, uh, Ann was way different with I'm Gonna Tear Your Playhouse Down, I Can't Stand the Rain. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, they're kind of from a beware. There's a lot of strong right. wo woman songs in there and the strength in this kind of, not anger, but attitude that was so cool. And then this one, there's two, uh, You Keep Me Hanging On and I'm So Thankful. They're just, she loves being a, a wife and a mom. Right. And um, the, the You Keep Me Hanging On is just like the, the, it's like three chords, very simple production. And her vocal is just beautiful mm -hmm. on it. And the mm -hmm. lyrics are just like a damn pin. They're super simple, but something we've all felt a hundred right. times and just evoke, evoke something in me every time I listen to it and right. I just sing along. And right. That's, um, that's been a theme so far throughout our conversation is, uh, all of these lyrics are, are gorgeous and well-written lyrics, uh, John Prine all the way up to Ann Peebles so far, but they, they take very, sp they, they communicate something very complex and very plain spoken yeah. language. Yeah. Um, Prine, is a master. Of that, oh yeah, of course. totally. And we, we have more of that here. Um, you talked about production and Willie Mitchell. Uh, of course this came out on high records. It was produced by Willie Mitchell. How do you characterize the sound of high recordings from that era versus say stacks recordings from that era? Well, I think it's, you know, people say Motown was pop and stacks was the funk. Right. But I think like stacks was the Motown to high. When you look at high versus stacks, um, and, and stack and and high changed a little bit. Um, 
Willie was really the first guy in music to use those pretty jazz chords, mm. like in Al Green. You can hear the high records go from um, the early Bill Black combos to when he really nailed it with Al Green with like, I'm so tired of being alone, where it's got these, and Let's Stay Together, it's got these weird, I mean, that's a weird groove on Let's Stay Together. Right. And it's a long song, and it's longer song, and it's got pretty jazz chords. And as Al Green would say, I'm singing like a girl, you know, <laughs> and the big punchy horns. And and Willie actually had Boo Boo Mitchell and his family have told me this story a million times that Willie went to the record label and they didn't hear that Let's Stay Together was a hit. He played it for them, and they're like, "What? How many records do you think we should print, Willie?" And he's like, "You need to print ten million, you right. know, or whatever." They're like we don't hear it. And he's like, "All right," and he played it again. He's like, "We don't hear it." And he's like, well, "All right, I'll play it again." And because um, it was so different back then, it was like one four five with a two minor. It was just standard kind of, right. you know, Motown stack slot had the same changes. It, as long as as well as rock and roll rockabilly country but um but willie got out of that and did these pretty jazz things and these great horn arrangements weird strings and um and of course he found that one groove that take me to the river all those songs mm-hmm. let's love and happiness is that one groove of howard grimes right on the drums and like i said he used it on like every song but it was <laughs> you don't get tired of it you, right it to me it's like a when you listen to Hill Country, like R.L. Burnside, mm-hmm. that thing never changed. It may never change a chord, and the beat never changes. It never breaks down. There's no dynamics. Right. But it's it it's like trance. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets right. you into a thing that you can't, you just want to dance. Yeah, and, that's exactly uh, right. And uh, Willie, I think, was the master of that. Right. With, with, with bringing some serious um, musicality to soul music with the chord changes and the, you know, and, and early stacks was different. Early stacks was all major chords. Right. It wasn't till Al Bell got there. And then the mid seventies, you know, when they got Johnny Taylor and you got this really funky mm-hmm. stuff happening, you right. know, with the crazy chord changes and stuff before right. that was, it was a lot of like country, country changes. Right. Right. People kind of, I think casual listeners don't realize how much those styles have in common. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And especially did back then. Um, I want to ask you about Bobby Charles's I Must Be in a Good Place Now. This is off his uh, self-titled album. came out in 1972. Wild apple trees Blooming all around I must be in a good place now One of the most remarkable things about this song is it's restraint we've talked about just listening as a producer and and getting a sense of what the song needs um this song could do so much but it just it feels very restrained and measured and appropriate do you ever when you're producing songs like this do you ever have to fight the temptation to go well we've got a horn guy in the room let's see what happens yeah it happens quite a bit and and artists get excited and want to put stuff on there but I, i i i'm very there, there are records I listen and I go, you could probably could have taken some of that off, but, but, and that's, and I still don't have as many, you know, pop tracks these days can have over 200 tracks right. on there. And I don't think I ever go past 12, um, uh, for the most part. But, um, yeah, I just think, uh, you know, when you have a great song, great singing, great lyrics, it, the space is what's beautiful. Right. It really reveals. And when you overload it with too much stuff, you're just taking and making it sound smaller. Mm. And Bobby Charles is a, he's kind of like the New Orleans damn pin. He had his first hits when he was like 15. He wrote See You Later, Alligator, and Walking in New Orleans. Um, and Bobby, uh, the great 
Billy Swan, who we'll get to, told me Bobby used to wear white gloves everywhere. I just thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> but then, and that Bobby Charles record is like the damn pin. You got to listen to the whole record. The whole record mm. is incredible. Kind of country, soul, funk. Right. But with some more New Orleans in there. And um, yeah, Bobby was just kind of like, a, he should be um, like Dan. He should be the, have the, the Medal of Honor. He should have Purple Heart right. for music. But most people don't know who he is. Right. You know? There, um, what is it about this song specifically that it's beautiful? It's just, uh, there, there's four or five songs on this record that I've listened to all the time. And like you said, the, the space, the production on this is great, but just the lyrics, the feeling he evokes, um, the chords. Mm -hmm. And it's a, um, it's another like how lucky you just feel like I feel lucky and I feel like I'm in a good place now. And that, that song really, um, makes you feel that way. And I always like, if I wasn't making records, I'd love to go. I'm terrible at it, but I wish I was fishing. And so that mm. chorus of it's a good day to go fishing. Right. Know. But I also, as a, as a, as a wannabe songwriter, I love that he can write such a beautiful song about going fishing, <laughs> you know, and it's breathtaking. Like I remember there's a Neil Young, I almost put it on the list, Neil Young, long may you run. Mm. It's a gorgeous song. If you're in played acoustic, you're like, oh my God. And it's about his car, you know? And you hear that later, you're like, God, right. I can't write something about my heart being broken good. And you can write about your car right. beautifully, you know? It's just amazing. I think Pearl Jam took a page out of their buddy Neil's book, The The Legend Is That Their Song Go, which is on paper about like a relationship that's failing, uh, was actually written about Eddie's truck. He didn't yeah. want it to go out on him at that's the wrong time. Nuts. Yeah. The mix is also brought to you by our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Open seven days a week at 1916 Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Memphis, Shangri-La recently celebrated 30 years of slinging music from Memphis, the Delta region, and beyond. Where beyond, don't worry about it. The shop is stacked with killer records from classic labels like Stax, Sun, High, Chess, Motown, Atlantic, and Blue Note, to modern indie labels like Secretly Canadian, Matador, Fat Possum, Light in the Attic, Third Man, Muzzle, Grover Cleveland's Beard, and many more. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or shop online and sign up for the store newsletter at shangri.com to keep up with events and sales. I'm Josh Spickler. I'm the host of The Permanent Record here on the OAM Network. We're a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can all work together to make it better for everyone. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and right here on the OAMnetwork.com. Let's go ahead and uh, talk about Courtney Marie Andrews' uh, Took You Up. This came out in 2019. How'd you discover her music? I want I de- this song is a really just I've heard it in the last the uh, 2019 the last couple of months mm-hmm. and I wanted to give you a song that was you know actually of this decade <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of my stuff is before but um and I, I recently met Courtney and I told her how much this song blew me away but uh, she's on uh, Fat Possum Records and my buddy Bruce Watson and Matt own and operate Fat Possum partly out of Memphis partly out of Oxford Mississippi and she's done her last two records with them. And, uh, you know, 
I work a lot of the people in that kind of scene. They call it Americana Roots. Um, and I checked her out, and she has the most beautiful voice, and she writes these incredible songs. And I and I got the record, and it was produced by Mark Howard. And Mark Howard and Daniel Lenoir made a lot of great records that I listened to, like uh, Time Out of Mind, Bob mm. Dylan, Teatro, Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris, Wrecking Ball. So it was, it was cool to hear, see something Mark's done recently. Uh and so there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to check out the record. And, and song six on the record and the lyrics mm-hmm. are amazing. And and just the way she sings it and just like the feeling of um, it evokes. I, you know, uh, I think recording engineers besides serial killers are probably the h- hardest, pe- like the relationship ratio of us, of relationships working out <laughs> with, with the opposite sex or whatever sex uh, is very failure rates very high because right. <laughs> of the weird hours and what our job entails. Right. Um, and so I always love the songs. I think because I, you know, I'm more of a workaholic than I am. Uh, uh, I, uh, I don't, I'm not so, as, as lucky in love as I am in uh, <laughs> music. And, uh, right now that's okay. But, uh, the, so that's why I thought I always, always picked the dark songs, but I'm right. picking all these like happy or these love songs for some reason. So I'm learning a lot about myself, but that 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 song just from a new artist, I think, is just a classic already. It's just like a I don't know. It's just incredible. It's true. When uh, her last full length came out, uh, that was my introduction to her, and I think the song that really hooked me was Irene. Yeah, and uh, that was the first one I heard, and it has there's just enough Emmy Lou in her voice for me to go, oh my god, I think I love you because yeah. Emmy Lou is. The pinnacle for me. Yeah. Like she's my yeah. absolute favorite. Um, but having said that, one thing I really respond to about Courtney Marie Andrews is that even though you can definitely hear influences in her music, uh, she's she has her own voice. Yeah. She she feels like a distinct and fully realized oh, artist. Yeah, totally. Like right. out of nowhere. I mean, I know she's been working on it. She I think she's been doing it since she was like fourteen or something, but it just right. like came out and was just like, This is awesome. Right. So awesome. How do you determine what projects you'll work on what artists you might work with uh i'm always very surprised when artists call me and say they want to work with me because <laughs> there's so many great people out there uh i just don't think they've done their research enough but um it's just really um i'm always honored and, and kind of flabbergasted when they call and then i just ask to hear the music first to me it doesn't matter about the money or or the time or anything like that oh a lot of my favorite records are the ones I basically did for free mm. because of, of how much I love the artists and the music. And um, so really it's just if I connect with the music and the person. So a lot of times when they reach out, I'm very thankful. And then I um, listen to the music and I kind of call them and we talk for a little bit and see if we're on, feel like we're on the same page. And then, uh, then usually it's on. And uh, very rarely is it something I, I hear something in everything. And even it's, it's fun I don't like to game plan too much before we get in there. I, I, with the way records are now in time, people don't have time to do pre-production, which I kind of like because it's like you can you can plan something out all day, but when you get in there and then the bass player's learning the song and hits a different note on accident, you're like, actually, it should it should go to that chord. Right. You know, there's so much I like to leave up to chance because knowing you got a great song, great people in the room, what all the magic that can happen. Without overstating it, do you feel like? That tendency is more of a in the Memphis style of recording than Nashville. Um, yes, uh, Memphis has always been about head arrangements and not 
you know, not really charting stuff out ahead of time. And, right. and Jerry Wexler and then when they got when they came down with stacks, they were always amazed that these guys were just kind of pulling this stuff out right. as they go. You know, it's also a different kind of music too that we do down here. A lot like especially R and B stuff that's not as done as much in Nashville. Right. Um, where in Nashville it's it's more country and you also have more things filling those, you know, pedal steel and mandolin and fiddle where, you know, horns are are better sparse and stuff like that. So there's no talent. I think Nashville's Nashville's changed quite a bit. There's such a cool scene up there now mm. of what it's where people are. It's really a melting pot now of young and old and all these different genres that are happening. Right. Um, so that's probably changing some, but but the old school of the charting and the three hour session still was there, and not, not so much here. Right. So much of your work would be classified in, say, a review as Terrible. falling under the, <laughs> as falling into the Americana Bad production. Americana genre some somewhere uh in that big tent. How do you define Americana? I've always struggled with this. Uh you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um um uh, or, or I think it's where all the out uh, the uh misfits go, honestly. It, mm. You know, genre I can understand as an artist being not wanting to be pigeonholed by a genre. Um and I don't think I think the the way Americana's gone now where there's, you know, this week is Americana week and I was up there for some of that stuff and and uh but really you know it while you may not want to be classified in a genre how cool is it to be in the same class as William Bell, Yola Tango, John Prine, Jason Isbell, Margot Price, right. you know, all Warren I mean all these different you know, you know, they're all different genres but we're all under this one banner I think and for that music to be recognized and to be really appreciated now for a long time it was like the cult thing you know and now it's like you know besides like mainstream pop and country it's to me it's like right up there and american american listeners tend to buy physical products and they die hard fans that go to all the shows so you know i think it's just incredible for the artists even though they may not want to be pigeonholed by that genre right Uh, you know i know that i've been grouped there and i I personally you know someone says what genre are you i'd say singer songwriter and hope that suffices but um yeah it tends not to but i mean even though i wouldn't necessarily say that i am an americana artist strictly if someone is like a partisan americana music fan and that's how yeah. they think of me yeah great yeah whatever road got you i here, don't think you know? it can hurt at all i don't right. think people are like oh i don't listen to americana because that's like <laughs> right. everything is americana yeah you're kinda, you, know? <laughs> you might not listen to music then yeah you referenced Billy Swan earlier, so let's go ahead and touch on him. So, Billy Swan, Don't Be Cruel, his cover of the Elvis classic. Don't be cruel. To a heart Don't be cruel. My first question is, what the hell's going on in this song? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. <laughs> um, Billy Swan is the nicest person in the whole wide world. I met him at Sun. He had a big hit in 1974 with I Can Help. It was a number one record. And Billy, I'll just give you guys a quick, because he's like, in the best way, the Forrest Gump of music. And what, what I mean by Forrest Gump is when you watch the movie and he runs into all these famous people and th- in amazing moments, that's Billy. 
Billy also had a hit when he was 16. He wrote Lover Please, which was a big hit for Clyde McFadder. Uh, and he was um, Chet Atkins' roadie for a while. He worked in, he was the assistant on Blonde on Blonde for a short time at uh-huh. CBS Studio. He became a big songwriter. He, he started running around with um, Chris Christopherson and those guys. He became Chris's band leader for years. Then he had his own couple hit, big hit records and just um, done it all. He's been a, he's worked as a music supervisor on films and just, Still writes. He's 76. I stay at his house every time I go in Nashville. He still writes music. And if you listen to his I Can Help record, he has this amazing kind of country funk rockabilly sound that no one um, else, it's unique to him. It's mm-hmm. like a lot of these other artists. And John Lennon was a big fan of his. A lot of those guys were big fans and of, of Billy's. And the, the, on, on, on the I Can Help record, is this cover of Don't Be Cruel, and it's like, you've heard it, it's halftime, it's super swampy. Right. Uh, it features the American Boys, the great session guys that played on all those hit records. Um, it was cut at Chip Young's back, back home studio in the 70s, and uh, Chip had the first console with panning knobs. So on this, the psychedelic, you can hear on the piano solo, he pans the piano back and forth and all around. It has the Jordan Airs on background vocals. Oh, wow. And that whole record is a great for me, is a great production tool where the Dan Penn record has a lot of stuff on there. Dan self-produced it so there's strings. He even tells it he puts a, put the whole thing in there. And it's still killer. Billy's is super empty, which is great right. house band playing. And the way the song builds uh, and then gets small and then builds again, it's just amazing. And right. the way it sounds, everything about that whole album, I, I just love. And Billy... I always tell this to Billy, but he's the only guy that covered Elvis and beat Elvis's version. And then Elvis covered his song, I Can Help, and didn't do a better version. Oh, wow. So I always tell Billy he's the king of that. But, <laughs> um, he, he still writes. He's, uh, I don't know, he's super inspirational to me. And he's just the nicest guy in the world. It's, um, well, since you have a personal relationship with him, I'm just going to go ahead and ask, do you know the explanation for, okay, set the table for the listener, uh, in Elvis's version, the lyric is, let's walk up to the preacher and uh, let us say I do. In Billy's version, he says, let's walk up to the preacher. And then the song kind of stops for 12 seconds. Mm-hmm. There's a pause between that and the next line. Just drums keep going. Yeah. And there's just this weird pregnant pause that happens yeah. out of the blue. And it's not even like, it's kind of like Bill Withers. Uh, I forget which, uh, which Bill Withers song is, but it starts with the, the drum beats, not just two bars. It's like... Mm. eight bars of it's a really long right. break i don't i i think i would ask them about once and they just thought it was cool at the time <laughs> to have a a break there and stop on that line and make you think about what's coming next and i see and uh but yeah that song you know it's if you really listen to that song it starts with it's a droning organ mm. and drums and then the bass comes in and then you can barely hear piano come in you can barely hear a little acoustic come in and then the electric guitar, everything kind of slowly comes. There's only like five pieces to it, but they all slowly come in. Right. And then how much they start playing a little bit more and it gets bigger and they play a little louder and then it comes back down right. to the drums. And then it comes in full bore at the end right. with the background vocals. And it's just a phenomenal way to build a track, you know. It's yeah. just beautiful. The more I listen to it, the more I heard in there. Because yeah. just kind of, if you have it on the background, it doesn't sound like there's that much going on in the arrangement, but then the more you listen, the more you discover. So, I mean, not only is that moment of, you know, that 12 seconds where he pauses between lines, 
fascinating. But when he says, let's walk up to the preacher, you actually hear the guitar play the son of the preacher, man. Yeah. Little, little riff there. Um, and to take the lyrics, which well, Elvis's version, and no, nothing wrong with that, is sugar pop teen. Right. You know, but and to take those same lyrics and flip it like that, where it's it's like super, all of a sudden it's meaningful and it's pulling your heartstrings. And, right. You know, I don't know. That's That's pretty incredible. It is. Well, a lot of the songs on your mix uh, certainly predated both of us, but specifically came out in the 70s. Um, <laughs> you, you did mention Courtney Marie Anders and wanting to include something more contemporary. Uh, what is it about records from that era that seem to resonate more? Uh, you know, people always say I'm an old soul and I just love, I've just always connected with older people like in the like billy billy's mm. an older guy and he's one of my dearest friends and um when i was started son so young everyone was older than me and i played in all the bands i played in were older than me i was 18 19 they were in their 30s and we were on we're touring and stuff and um so i've always just it's always been i've always i've been a little bit more i would say mature but other people probably say boring <laughs> <laughs> with people my age so i've always connected with older folks and love that and growing up at sun really hearing all that music I, I don't know i just always really connect connected to that stuff more than i did like you know nothing you know when we were growing up it was cake and and stuff like that and there that stuff was cool but you know watching hal and wolf and sure and uh bob dylan's you know it took me a little bit longer to get into bob dylan now i love him but um, yeah, just I don't know the older stuff. It's just I don't know, everything about it. The way it sounds, the way it, um, the way they cut it. The you know back then they're all smoking. There's these black and white photos. They're smoking and there's, <laughs> you know, got these cool pieces of gear and stuff. Now people are just hunched over computers and, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> it doesn't right. look as cool. <laughs> it definitely doesn't look as cool. I mean. I don't know, man. I think we could take that one in two ways. You were also the kid in grade school doing Andy Kaufman impressions that the other kids weren't laughing yeah. at, but you were right. They were wrong. Yeah. People didn't laugh at Andy Kaufman. I think Andy Kaufman appreciated it because people didn't laugh at his stuff. Exactly. At the time, so. Yeah. That's part of the point, I suppose. Well, um, I don't want to get any further without asking you about Chuck Berry. Uh, you included in your mix, You Can Never Tell, um, came out in 1964. They bought a souped up chitney, was a cherry red 53. Drove it down to Orleans to celebrate the anniversary. It was there where Pierre was waiting to the lovely Mademoiselle. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks. Both the show you never can tell. Now, a peek behind the curtain, you initially texted me Chuck Berry's No Particular Place to Go, then revised Quickly, it yeah. to uh, You Never Can Tell. So, what happened there? I was illegally texting and driving and oh, no. started to put in the wrong one without thinking, um, uh, which, and I would have been perfectly fine with no particular place to go. I just think as a songwriter, you can't, and an appreciator of song, you can't overlook Chuck Berry. I mean, right. for most people's hits back in the day, you know, how much for that puppy dog in the window, don't be cruel. And the, the theme of today is simple songs. And then Chuck Berry came along and wrote these beautiful stories, mm. full-fledged like could be a movie into a minute and a half song with a groove and a guitar and a catch in a catchy line. And, um, you know, even used you know, French language and then stuff. And just, uh, uh, I don't know, Chuck, despite his, um, his personal, some, some of his personal things, I just, he, he, um, as a song, I just was a truly unique uh, guy really changed the way music, 
was play certainly played and, and written. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think people widely think of him as a revolutionary artist and and also as an amazing guitar player. Um, but I'm so glad that you mentioned the lyrics because yeah. that's always the first thing I think about with Chuck Berry. Yeah. Is, I mean, he was so far ahead of everybody else yeah. in terms of lyric writing, especially for that era. And I know, you know, I'm a Beatles freak. I know that was one of the things that they really gravitated yeah. towards in his music, that they were um, so many of their early songs that were when they started writing narrative lyrics. Yeah. That was he was a big influence on yeah. that. As you say, I mean, in such a tiny space, he can tell a whole story. Tell it, tell it, tell it all, and and with big words and big rhymes, you know, where Dan does it beautifully simple, Chuck could do it with these right crazy rhymes and long, you know, syllables and everything. Just in this song alone, I mean, we have Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle, uh, Cool Raider, Souped Up Jitney. These are not yeah. easy words to fit into a song and have it sound effortless. Yeah, and yet he's able to do it. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. Well, uh, before we run out of time, I'd close every episode by asking the guest about a song of theirs that they've worked on that I admire. Um, so I want to make a point of asking you about Margot Price's Four Years of Chances. Mm-hmm. I gave you four years of chances to try and fill a happy home. But now one more may as well be a out in 2016 it was off her let's say breakthrough album she's been around for a minute but breakthrough album at the time midwest farmer's daughter you produced this Mm -hmm. album um what was your introduction to margo margo um booked some time with a band uh um coming back from south by southwest i think it would be 2014 maybe and and they and you know um they just called on the phone and said hey we'd like to book the time and I've, what's your name, Margo? You know, mm-hmm. I would record anybody you want to at Sun. And they could only do it like 11 o'clock at night because they were driving back from Texas. So I met them up there at 11 and we did two hours. And and this is, you know, for anyone in, I speak a lot at recording classes and music things. And, you know, everything is an audition, I say. You know, like a lot of engineers would be like, I'm not going to go up at 11 o'clock at night to work just for two hours. But I really love what I do. And I think everyone, at, you know, like we talked about at Sun, everyone deserves the right to record the end there if you, th- you don't think you do because it's it's your dreams there's no one should tell you your dreams aren't right for this place or right. this place, that place anyways um went up there and met them and we recorded eight track and she blew my mind her and her husband jeremy and the band and they didn't really have they have a label or anything they were just trying to record and they wanted to come to sun and like i said they blew my mind and I, I stayed in touch with them. I kept bugging them. Like, please, if you need help making a record, whatever I can do, I'll do. And she wrote me back a couple months later. I got I got the songs and I got them the best rate I could in the studio. I basically did it for free, uh, just paid the studio. And we made that Midwest Farmer's Daughter in three days, top uh-huh. to bottom. Uh, she sang it all live and a great band, great songs. I didn't really hear the songs till they got there and just mm-hmm. was like, you know, hearing um, all those songs two minutes before we cut them was just like, that was cool, you know? Yeah. Um, and that one happened pretty fast, I think, uh, like one or two takes. And her husband played bass on that first record, which I, I love his bass playing. And I just fuzzed it out real quick. They they didn't hear the fuzz out there because they didn't have headphones on. I fuzzed it in the on this tube thing after the amp. Uh, and they came in like, oh, we like that. Um, and then I put down, I, when we mixed, I added a little acoustic wah because I uh, acoustic guitar with a wah-wah just because I feel like it needed a little bit of extra rhythm stuff mm. in there. 
Um, but yeah, just they that that Margaret came in. Just I couldn't believe that no one had signed her or put her out. I mean, she was a, such an I like like all the others we tried. Such an identity, unique identity, and her right. husband. Luckily, people are catch on Jeremy now. He's got his own album out. That's really phenomenal too, because he's a Great. phenomenal sing, singer songwriter as well. Great. But yeah, it was just uh, we were all just young young kids <laughs> making a record, and it took I think we took like a year and a half to shop it for Third Man, and Third Man heard and they loved it, and they put it out just like we had done it. So that's great. It's really cool. And then Margo now is queen of everything. I love <laughs> it. It's so amazing. Well. I mean, Nashville's home base for her. Memphis is still home base for you, all, even though you go back and forth a lot. Would did y'all cut it at Sun? Was that was that like her first choice? Where you're like, this is where we can do it on the budget. Uh, she she liked. I was the house engineer at that time, right. so I wasn't working too much outside the studio. Um, and she loved it from that first initial session. So yeah, she liked. And I think the original thinking about fame, but they came to Sun and liked it so much that right. Um, they stay there, and that and that's. Uh, what's really cool, I think, is we did that record. That's, I think, one of my proudest moments at some because a lot of people want to come in and just sound like an old Johnny Cash record or something, where we went in there and did something new. Right. And a big a big thing that Sam Phillips always said that I loved was, if you're not doing anything different, you're not doing anything at all. Right. And I always kind of re- appreciate that. I, I love to pull from the past, and I love it when a record sounds timeless, where you can't go, oh, that was obviously cut in 1980 right. or whatever. But um same time i don't want it to just sound like we're ripping somebody else off so. right was everybody tracking live on the floor? yeah everybody's live in a circle yeah. basically cutting live so that's great um it definitely has that energy it helped the layman understand obviously sun is legendary and uh historically important and has a great atmosphere and vibe that's unique to the building but is there anything sonically that makes it special to this day? Yeah, Sun has no isolation boosts, no um, di- dividing walls or anything. And Sam was really uh, brilliant with acoustics. So he wanted to sound a little bit live, but also warm and and um, accentuate um, f- frequencies and stuff of, of the voice. So if you go in there and talk, your voice will actually won't sound thinner. Like sometimes you go in a room, you can hear like a... Hear, there it's sucking out some mid-range or, or something right and he, but didn't want it overly bassy either so he just got it kind of i think it's somewhere in the 400 hertz area but it's a really warm sounding room and there's just enough live floor and there's no parallel surfaces but there's a long flat wall where he had a curtain for a while but with the curtain back you can get a kind of a cool bounce to the room that that um just makes everything have a little bit more uh he he heard the to deflect for a minute. <laughs> he used to listen to records in a cafe through the jukebox. And he always said he loved how when he heard the record, it was booming out and bouncing off the cafe wall. So it had extra little bit of presence and roominess to it. I see. It wasn't just right there in your face. And so that's what he wanted from the studio too, was that, you right. know, like singing in the shower to an extent or playing acoustic guitar, you know, at the lobby at San Phillips, you play acoustic guitar in the lobby. It, it doesn't sound necessarily better, but it just has this, uh, reflections to it where it's like, oh, that sounds cool, you know. Right, so right. He had some of that, a controlled bit of that. Oh, that's in the studio. That's fascinating because you you can definitely hear that. I know exactly what yeah, you exactly, mean. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So you were still uh, the house engineer at Sun when y'all were when you were producing this album for Margo. Mm-hmm. Um. Was it 2015 when you got the call to engineer something more than free? Yeah. So we had done Margo's record, and like I said, it didn't come out for a year and a half. So there was right. a long time before between cutting Margot's record and coming out and I had I've been thinking about going independent for a while because it's one thing to 
work in one room with the same gear all this all the time. You know, I got really good at it. But how do you work in other rooms and other situations, other bands, other genres? So I really wanted to push myself and keep getting better and see and just see what I could do. Uh, and um, this wonderful producer, Dave Cobb, who I was a big fan of some of his records, called me. We had some mutual friends and and. He was doing a record at Muscle Shoals at Fame at the time, and he wanted me to ask if I come engineer it. Um, and uh, so he called me out of the blue, and this, like I said, everything's on audition. So I went down there, never met him. I think I'd met him once before. I met him once before at an event, but just briefly. Um, but uh, went down there, and um, we worked with Anderson East. It was for a Spotify. And about two hours into the session, he said, man, this sounds really good. And I go, yeah, it's, it's Fame, you know, <laughs> I don't have to do anything. He goes, do you want to come to Nashville and engineer the new, the new Jason Isbell record with me? And I was a big fan of the record they did, Southeastern. Sure. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And I was like, that'll never happen, you know, because there's <laughs> so many times that you hear, oh, someone wants to use you on this, but it never, nothing ever comes about it. Mm-hmm. And I remember we finished at like 2 in the morning. I drove back to Memphis that night wide awake because I was high off the music and, and the idea of doing more with Dave and – um he called a couple of days later and asked if I would engineer. And I said, I'd love to. It would be like a whole month initially of studio time. And I went to the owners at Sun and I basically asked if I could be gone for a month. And, and it, they wouldn't, it went, they wouldn't, it was too much time for them to let me be gone. Mm. So I, I knew I'd f- regret it forever if I didn't sure. do this album. And I love being at Sun, but I also been thinking about going independent. So, I tell people it was like the easiest and the hardest decision, you know, because I love that place so much, but I had to go do this record. So I quit my job of 11 years and a steady paycheck in the music industry, which is very rare. And I went to Nashville and made a record with Dave and it was something more than free. It was, uh, I learned a lot um, off that record and got to meet Jason and Dave and become friends with everybody. And that turned into, we did the Nashville sound together. I probably got to do, 20 or 30 records with Dave, including John Prine and some of these amazing right. artists. So um, I'm very thankful for him and Jason and, and all those guys. And, and it, it really changed my career. And now it's, I couldn't, I can't complain. I get to work all over and right. work on some amazing stuff. And I, I would still be happy if I was that son, certainly, but just the amount of stuff I get to, to do now. And, and really, like I said, make myself better. I got, I learned a lot just going to Nashville a couple of times. Mm. Not not necessarily Nashville, the town's different, but just different studios, different ways of people working. Right. Versus coming to a more vintage studio with like, you know, there's only so many ways to do things. Right. So it it, it really helped me learn a lot in a quick amount of time. Last question, Matt. Um bringing it back to Margo, of course you your role was producer on this album. Now we're talking about Dave Cobb. Cobb uh your role was engineer uh-huh. on that album um can you kind of walk us through the how do you make those distinctions in, in terms of the job description um how does it look different when you're working as kind of like dave's second as you're producing a record versus role of producer you're the primary engineer you're steering the ship well it uh it's different for everybody you know um um some producers don't aren't technical at all, so they just sit on the you know like everyone says Rick Rubin sits on the couch, but he does way more than that. But he doesn't twist knobs, right? He doesn't tell you put this mic up. I think he says creative Sherpa is <laughs> yeah creative Sherpa. So and that they're all equally correct and they're all equally valuable and and right. You know, um, Dave is not an engineer, but he's more hands on and he knows gear and stuff. So 
you're still running, you're still miking and doing everything an engineer would. And then he might come and go, actually, I'm hearing this. And he can actually um, equate that to specific gear or a specific microphone or a specific song where right. some people go, I hear it more blue. And, you know, so he's more technical in that sense, but still very much the producer and, and always has an engineer. And then some producers, like we said, aren't technical. Mm -hmm. And so the engineer is doing a lot more that some, even like to the sense of like comping vocals and stuff that yeah. some uh, usually a producer will, if not do it, sit with the engineer while engineer man's in, in like, let me hear this vocal and comp, right. you know, things like that. So it's different on different producers right. and in, in engineers, some engineers, you know, especially when you have a team that have been working together a long time, you know, they often trust the engineer to do a lot more, even like, you know, producing in a sense, some of the overdubs and stuff because they worked out some great stuff, you know, like Rick leaves, I think the engineer to do all the tracking and overdubbing. He comes in, just make sure they're still on track and goes away and comes back and right. takes stuff out. So the engineer is kind of really producing a lot of that stuff, right. you know? And, um, so it, yeah, it can be all, it, and that's another thing of, you know, of being a people person in this business is I tell us to the recording classes as an engineer, you're the producer's best friend you're also the artist's best friend. And that oftentimes is bad because sometimes the producer and the band need to need to fight or need to have it out over if the producer needs to push them on something or the band's not happy with what the producer's doing. Sure. You're the guy in the middle that has to, yes, yes, like be cool with both of them and do what the both of them want, even if it's the exact opposite of what each other wants. So right. there's a fine balance uh, between that and uh, you have to juggle that all the time and it can be different with different people and different egos and stuff. So it's a, oftentimes it's a, it's a thin line right? Uh, where, you know, uh, so yeah, it really depends on who you're working with and, and what producer and stuff. So in my limited experience, it's equally important, if not more important to have the right personalities in the room uh, as opposed to just the right expertise in yeah. the room. Um, you, I have a pretty strict no asshole policy when yeah. I'm in the studio. Yeah, and uh, it definitely helps. I mean, just the wrong. I I think people don't realize that even just you know if if the food it sounds silly, but the food order gets wrong, right? It can really throw someone off if the of a a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a kid comes in there. It can take all the energy out of something right. that was going good, you know. So it's a very fragile ecosystem that the studio is um, right. on on the something more than free record. I really, I'll give you a quick story because it, it really helped shape me in a lot of ways. I think you've probably heard this in the studio, you know, like when you're mixing and, and someone goes like, Oh, I wish we could have put tambourine on there. And the guy goes, Oh no, sorry, we're mixing now. Like recording is done. Right. Well, that's just silly. It takes two seconds to go right. add a tambourine. Anyone can do it. When we were recording something more than free, there's a great song on the album called Steel Trap Town. And the way it was originally recorded was full band, pretty rock and roll. And as we we tracked everything live, and then we go back and do a couple overdubs as we go. So, you know, we're in two weeks in and we've kind of opened up all the songs again and we're messing with them. And at, instinctually, we never really went to Steel Trap Town. And at the time, you don't really know why, but we got to mixing time and mixing was just me, Dave, and Jason. And Amanda and the band would come by occasionally to hear stuff. But I remember we opened up Steel Trap Town and we went to dinner. And I, I can't remember if Jason or Dave brought first, but they go, you know what? Steel Trap Town's not really speaking to me yet. 
And we had done all this, you know, we'd spent a couple of days on this song. Right. You know, and I'm in mix mode. Uh, uh, and uh, Dave was like, why don't we just recut it when we get home, just you and acoustic, you know? And so we got home and I ripped all the patch cables out, even though like, <laughs> you know, it's, oh my God, we're mixing it. How am I going to get that back? Just ripped them all. It set up acoustic guitar, vocal, uh, acoustic guitar and vocal microphones. And first take, Jason goes out there and does Steel Trap Town like you hear on the album. Mm. And then he added like a slide, I think, mm. and uh, maybe like a floor tom or something. Yeah. And that was, we mixed it right then there. It was done. Right. And that's on the album. And it's incredible. And it just really reinforced to me, um, it's easy nowadays with production, especially with computers, that the engineer or the producer, they can kind of get tunnel vision. Like they're right. just in the computer. I'm sure as you, you as an artist, you've been there and like you're listening back and you go, I could sing that better or play it better. And they go, Oh, hold on. I can just, and right. then five minutes later, they're still trying to nudge it. Mm -hmm. And I always like tell people they should have the car rear view mirror. Instead of looking at the computer, you look up and see your face go, I could sing that again. You know, right, you're right. still back there. Like I could sing that again. And so I've watching things like that make me real. Um, a that don't be precious about anything in the studio. Right. And then B, just all, like I said, always be listening mm -hmm. by the tone. Like you saying, I could probably sing it better. Just go, okay, don't it's, don't try and edit this thing anymore. Go, right. yeah, go up there. Let's go sing it. Right. And Steel Trap Town was the same thing. Even though we had spent, you know, the whole band played on this thing. We'd done overdubs and this and that. Right. It wasn't feeling right yet, so go do it acoustic. And that version is incredible. Right. And we did it in five minutes, and that's the one on the album. So and in the mix stage on the last day, you know. Right. So to me, that was a really important lesson about music. Don't be precious about anything. Just go for, follow your gut and what feels right. And I, I remember, I try to remember that every album when there's that song that like you cut on day two or something that now in the context of these eight other songs don't feel that way. Well, we'll, we'll go try it again, you know. Right. So. Right. Well, um, I could talk to you all day, Matt. Uh, that's a great note to end on. Gil's giving us the axe. <laughs> Gil's got places to go. I Gil's, think he's getting another tattoo yeah. in the, here in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for joining me today, man. Thank I really you appreciate you. for having you. me in the mix. Absolutely. With Chris Milam. <laughs> and there you have it. My name is Chris Milam. I'm easy to find on social media at Chris Milam or at Chris Milam Music. Thanks so much to our presenting sponsor, Audible, and our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Thanks very much to Matt Ross Bang for being an extraordinary guest. The mix is produced by the OAM Network in Memphis, Tennessee, and is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks again, y'all. See you next time. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.